Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together we are the Minimalists. Our material possessions are a physical manifestation of our internal lives. Consequently, when we have too much stuff, it's often because we have too much mental clutter and too many distractions. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the cluttered mind with Dr. Amishi Ja, author of the new book. I'll hold it up for the YouTube viewership here. The book is called Peak Mind. We'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. This Thursday on the Minimalist Private Podcast, we're going to discuss several ways to avoid the distractions that create psychological and emotional clutter. You can check that out at patreon.com slash the minimalist. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because say it with me. Advertisements, advertisements suck. suck. <laughs> oh, doesn't that feel good? There's no advertisements. Yeah. Awesome. Dr. Ja, Amishi. Yeah. Um, Thanks for being here. Thank you oh, so yeah. much for being here. What a great book. Thank you oh, for writing this book. Thank you. It's amazing. Thank you. And yes, please just make sure you call me Amishi. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, you're a neuroscientist. Uh, we want to talk to you about cognitive neuroscience today. I want to steer you in a bunch of different directions. But as you know, this is a listener-driven show. So we're going to start with our first question here from Ginger on Facebook. What are the best first steps to take to reduce mental clutter? Mm. So, so a very broad question here. Let's talk about mental clutter. I sort of talked about it at the top of the show here. Quite often, you know, Ryan and I are the minimalists, and so we talk about physical clutter, but that's often a result of what's going on inside us. Mm. So having a cluttered mind, can you talk about what that means to you? Yeah, absolutely. And I love the connection that you're... Well, first of all, I love you guys. You're awesome. Aww. Thank you. And I love the connection that you're making because you're absolutely right. The physical environment we have is sort of an outgrowth of what's going on in the mind. Mm. And from the neuroscience perspective, there's a lot to say regarding mental clutter. I think Ginger's question is a great one. Maybe we can culminate with the question, but I think there's some sort of groundwork I'd like to lay so that she can or they can find out what uh, what we're talking about, we even talk about what, what mental clutter is. Yeah. So, so for me, when I think about it, you know, again, I study attention, I study working memory, I study mindfulness. These are core or fundamental brain processes. And in my mind, when I think about the term mental clutter, it's essentially too much stuff happening in the mind, disorganized. Mm. And the third, I would say, and this is a very important component, there's a sense of overwhelm regarding it. Mm. It's not like there's a lot going on and it's a creative storm happening where you're just like, I just can't get enough of my mind. It's that it's uncomfortable. Mm. So then the question becomes, and this is where I think it'll be fun to chat, what causes it? Mm. Why do we have this? What is it about the nature of the mind that leads us into that space often? And it ends up that these same systems of attention that I talked about really relate to not just how the mind operates, but really action. And that's where I think it connects so nicely with what you all talk about with regard to clutter on our physical environment. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. What I, one of the biggest takeaways I got from your book was uh, one of the reasons why our minds are cluttered is because we're constantly looking at a screen. Mm. And it's funny because I look at, I've always thought of like, watching TV or, you know, uh, watching a YouTube video or something. 
as being a passive, pretty, uh, you know, pretty clutter free experience. But after reading your book, I'm like, oh, wow, like the more screens you look at, the, the more cluttered your mind actually is. You don't give yourself an opportunity to kind of purge all the thoughts and you're just adding more to it. So I think that's, that's one of the biggest reasons I think for the mental clutter is, mm-hmm. is uh, a lot of too much screen time. But of course, it, it goes back farther than that as well, because even pre-screens, we had a lot of mental clutter. Is that right? Yeah, I think both are true. And it ends up that they're completely interactive. Mm. So the screens that we're talking about right now, I mean, we can't avoid them, right? I mean, they're they're everywhere. We're not going to throw them away. We're not going to uh, remove them entirely from our lives. It actually would reduce the quality of our life in many ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, I couldn't have gotten here if I didn't have the Google Maps, for example. Yeah. Um, and the question becomes, what is happening to the mind when we are looking at screens. You described it as sort of this passive, maybe even sort of a way to rest your mind. Mm, Right. But it's not rest. Mm. It is actually, especially when we think about social media, it is very, very engaging and and really mentally consuming activity. If you turn on whatever app and you notice notifications, that's work for your mind. Mm. Clicking on each one and taking action based on it is work for your mind. Even seeing updates from somebody where you don't have to interact is work. Mm. So all of those things require this fuel of attention. And it's also impacting and interacting with, as Josh was saying, everything happening internally. So it's not passive in any way. It is actually active and, frankly, exhausting. Yeah, it's yeah, it's crazy. I just never realized that how it's it's not a break for your mind. It is it's just adding more clutter to it. You know, if I had to give Ginger advice, I'm not an expert on this matter, so maybe uh, you can either affirm <laughs> this or give her some different advice. But I really love just that first technique that you share in your book with focusing on the breath. And as soon as you find yourself, you know, your mind wandering, you go back to the breath. That's how I fell asleep last night. Oh, good. So I, I, I'm assuming you wanted to fall asleep. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I did. But yeah, I mean, I think that for me was like, that's the simplest advice I've ever heard to kind of start, uh, finding a way to like, uh, just relax the mind. Yeah. So it ends up that even the term relax is a little bit tricky. Mm, So, so maybe it would be helpful if I could say a little bit more about what attention is, because if we yeah. break down what attention is, then we can start thinking about really the, the real answers to Ginger's question, which is how do we treat this mental resource? How do we guide, control, or even as the subtitle of the book talks about it, own our attention? Mm. And it's not straightforward. It's not what we think, because the things we default to often aren't actually helpful. Mm. Um, so so maybe just say, I, want, I know you both of you have are comfortable with their book, but for many that haven't heard about it or read any of the content in it, attention ends up being not just one thing, but many things, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the very uh, fundamental ways attention works is, and I'm glad you did the breath focus practice because it's exercising this aspect. Mm -hmm. I'd like to describe attention as sort of really um, the success story of the brain. You know, oftentimes we complain that our attention is all over the place. We're distracted. We're, like we talked about, overwhelmed and cluttered. But it really is successful. It We don't have much happening in the brain right now that wasn't selected for over thousands and thousands of years. Mm. So just to remember that, that what may feel like a flaw may not be. It actually may be a feature. Mm. But one way we can think about attention, and we can really break it down into three main ways. The first is uh, a metaphor I like to use is like a flashlight, right? Yeah. So we can direct our attention willfully. If we're in a darkened room, just like a flashlight or in a darkened room, literally a flashlight will save us. It'll help us uh, find our way. If we're in a path uh, we can, and it gets dark out, we can kind of find our way. So what does that do? It kind of hones in, narrows, 
and illuminates, makes more clear a certain aspect of our physical environment. Mm. And that is something formally called the brain's orienting system. We do that same thing internally. So we can direct the flashlight internally. So if I have an idea or a thought or um, an urge or an impulse, that's where the flashlight's going to be. And everything else in my mind is going to kind of go quiet. Mm. So that way of thinking about attention is very helpful. Now, there's kind of it relates to Ginger's question in, in sort of one important way. So just like an actual flashlight, we can direct it. We can guide it. We can point it. Um, we can decide, you know, if I ask you, um, you know, what did you have for uh, breakfast this morning? Can you remember that? Black coffee. Well, <laughs> minimalist approach to breakfast. <laughs> yes. So, but you were probably thinking about that before I asked you. And the way in which you did that is you guided the mental flashlight of your attention to reflect on a memory of this morning and you pulled it out. Right? Yeah. But now so, that's occurring in the present moment. Well, mm. you're reporting it in the present moment. Right. right. But so... Then if I, if I um, you know, let's say we're, we're thinking about certain things, we're guiding our attention a certain way. If somebody um, claps their hands or a fire alarm goes off, mm. your attention is surely not going to stay wherever the flashlight was pointed. It's going to get yanked around by something else. Mm. Let's make it even more concrete. A notification goes off in your phone. Even the illusion of a vibration of your phone on silent. I mean, mm -hmm. how many of us have had that experience? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, my gosh, I think I'm getting a text message. That will pull your attention away. So the flashlight, not only can we direct it, but it can be yanked around. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the components that I think adds to the clutter. Mm. This notion of getting, wanting to push it somewhere or direct it somewhere and it getting pulled around. Yeah. Because then it ends up sort of appearing over and over again in our conscious experience. Yeah. Um, should I go through some of the other ways of yeah. thinking about attention? Okay, yeah. so, so the other way we can think about attention is almost the exact opposite as this narrowing, crisp, fine-grained flashlight. Almost you can get it to the point where it's like a laser beam. We can focus it so exquisitely. But just like your cat playing around, you know, <laughs> you move that laser beam around, it's going to get yanked around by certain kinds of mental content. So the second way we pay attention is something called the alerting system. And it really, the term really gives it away. It's what we get alerted to. So that that siren I was describing, we know what that means. Usually, if you, even if we hear it outside, uh, it's like, OK, something's up. Right. We don't know exactly what's up. Probably something not very good. Mm -hmm. uh, but we know something's up. If you're driving down the road or walking down the road and you see a flashing yellow light, usually by, let's say, a construction site or a school mm -hmm. zone or something. You know what that feels like. Right. It's you're not there pointing the flashlight of attention. You're kind of broad, receptive. You're alert and watchful, but you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. So it's almost like a caution in the mind that is broad and um, not selective and really cares about what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. So that's another way, going back to Ginger's question, that our attention can actually become prone to clutter. Because at some moments, especially under stress and when we feel overwhelmed, everything feels like a flashing yellow light. Mm, right. Everything feels like, oh, my gosh, I'm, I, it leads to something called hypervigilance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the first way is our focus is kind of flittering about. Uh, the second way is that we have an overabundance of alerting, which is almost hypervigilant. And then the third way we pay attention, you know, is it's, it's yet again another way we kind of parse the environment, something called executive control. And that, the metaphor I like to use is like a juggler. So really the juggler's job is to make sure that 
all the things that we want to do, meaning our goals in the moment, our particular goal, like right now I want to have a fun conversation with both of you. That's my goal. It wouldn't serve me in this moment to sort of get up and or just wander around the room. Right. <laughs> I mean, I've got to make sure my goals and my behavior align moment by moment. Uh-huh. And we use that term executive really like the way that you talk about the executive of a company. Sure. Uh, you aren't going to go in and do each individual task as a leader or as an executive, but you're going to make sure that everything that's going on is aligned with the goals. And this juggler metaphor is helpful because uh, it gives you that sense of like it's dynamic and there's only kind of a couple balls in the air at the time. you got to manage all of it. And going again back to Ginger's question, it's another way that we can get clutter because the balls will drop. Mm. We will get to the point where we will forget the goal. We will not monitor our behavior. We won't guide our behavior. So that's kind of painting a grim picture because it's like there's all these ways we pay attention and there's all these ways in which we can contribute to that feeling of overwhelm in our mind. Mm, yeah. But we need to understand this so we can know what we can do about it, which leads me back to your comment regarding the breath-focused practice. Mm. Because that practice, if you remember back, I called it the find your flashlight practice, right? And I did that because um, we are training not just the ability to direct our flashlight, but to know where it is in any moment. Mm. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to do something if it does get yanked or if we don't remember where we're supposed to point it. Mm. So I don't know. That's sort of a broad way to get to the point, which is that it's, it's very complicated. But in some ways, it gives us the landscape of what our mind is dealing with. And if we can parse it in this way, maybe we can now take a strategic approach to training our mind, which is sort of the key of what I'm interested in. Yeah. Ginger, I think you'll find value in Peak Mind. I'm going to send you a copy of the book. Sean, if you could reach out to her, I'd appreciate it. Let's move on to our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Looks like we have a question here from Alexandria in Jackson, Mississippi. I recently relocated through the military orders from New Mexico to Mississippi. I was in a 3-2 with a garage and I'm in a 2-2 apartment. And unfortunately, I had over 300 items that came with me through this move. Now I'm stuck uh, with this super clutter apartment. I'm still living out of boxes. I'm trying to figure out what the best way to get rid of stuff is. Um, I've noticed that I still have a lot of emotional connections to a lot of my physical items. I'm having a really hard time uh, letting go and finding ways to get rid of the stuff that I really put apart. And I just, I don't know, I just feel like I'm stuck. And I would love to hear um, what you guys recommend about this with the emotional attachment um, to everything. I have like stuff even far back from high school and I'm in my 40s. All right, Alexandra. So you've moved to Mississippi. Now, Amisha, let me just say this real quick. The average American household has more than 300,000 items in it. So she she said she moved there with 300 items. That's one-tenth of one percent, if my math is right. Yeah. Last time I checked, this is a math podcast. Right, yep. Spot on. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Ryan, we call him the human abacus. <laughs> I still can't tell if it's an insult or a compliment. <laughs> it's a complicult. <laughs> so, um, Amishi, um, 
What we're talking about here really is the attachment that we have to our material possessions. Because let's be honest, if you had 300 things that you truly disliked and someone else gave them to you, you would easily be able to get rid of them most likely. The problem is when we assign some sort of meaning some sort of inherent meaning to our things. We call it sentimentality or they're sentimental items now. Well, the only thing, the only difference between a item and a sentimental item is how much sentimentality we impart uh, on it. And so I would love to talk to you about this idea of the emotional connection that Alexandra has to her stuff because it doesn't start with the stuff. It starts with what's going on up here in our heads. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I'm just curious before I give you my take on it, what would you recommend that she does regarding the sentimentality? Oh, I mean, when I hear her describing her situation, I think about the packing party I did when I when I first started my whole minimalist journey. I had too much stuff. I don't know what to do. Um, I knew I needed to, like, make some uh, changes. And for me, uh, it usually takes some kind of I don't want to say drastic measure, but just something that really helps me change my state. And we came up with this idea to pack up everything in my house. So like Josh came over and he like helped me pack up my clothes, my kitchenware, my furniture, toilet, everything. We like even covered up my furniture. And then I unpacked things as I needed it day by day for three weeks. So uh, yeah, at the end of the three weeks, I had this kind of just a new perspective on all of these things that I brought into my life and what kind of value they were actually adding. So when I hear her question, when I hear Alexander's question, it just makes me think like this. She's in the perfect spot. Like she's she's literally doing a packing party right now, unpacking things as she needs it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the problem she's having now is at the end of that packing party, whatever duration of time you have. Mm-hmm. Now she has these things and it's like, uh oh, I know I'm not actually getting value from them. Mm-hmm. And so I feel as though. I would benefit by letting them go. However, I feel like I can't let them go because of the emotional attachment Mm. that I have to these things. Mm. Where does that emotional attachment come from? Yeah, I mean, that's a deep question, right? Mm. I mean, I think that at the heart of it, this is what gives us meaning in our lives, right? It gives us fulfillment. It connects us to other people. And it ends up emotion is actually very much intertwined with our attention, Because when we highlight that aspect of an experience, I mean, really what comes flooding back is probably the memory of what it was. Mm. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a matter of whether we need the material object in order to enjoy. Mm. In many cases, it really is enjoying. Like you said, if somebody gave it to us, we wouldn't have the sentimentality. But if it was a bad stuff, we probably wouldn't want to keep it either. Mm -hmm. So if it was emotional um, memories that were traumatic, problematic, difficult. Um, and we saw that and we saw that seeing them over and over again causes the eruption of mood states that are problematic. We'd say probably get rid of this or at least don't leave it out. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, I want to really honor that there, especially as a service member, I think she said she was a service member. Mm-hmm. You know, it means a lot to have items because they give us the continuity mm-hmm. across different physical spaces, especially as service mm-hmm. members travel from one place to another. The question is just, is it serving you in your life? And is the emotional memory that's being brought forward, is the object necessary to elicit that emotional memory? So, so, you know, I think you both have talked about this as well. Could you take a photograph of it? Could you write a little sentence that would describe the memory and the happy journey and then let it go? Mm -hmm. Because really what's happening with the physical clutter, again, is it's adding to that sense of overwhelm and disorganization that will interfere with the day-to-day operating of your mind. Yeah, it will. So your your question was really regarding what is the 
why does the emotional stuff happen? I can't I can't quite place yeah. what you were asking. What, what yeah. is the source of, of this? Because quite often, if I see an item, I don't just become attached to it. Your average person doesn't become attached to it. There are people who are stage five hoarders, and that's, yeah. that, that's a little bit different. But everyone in the Western world, for the most part, virtually everyone, is a stage one or stage two hoarder when you look at the five stages of hoarding. Mm-hmm. And so we're all inflicted with this. It's easy for us to sort of point and sneer at the people on our TV screens because they have things strewn across their floor. But... The truth is that all of us impart some sort of emotional meaning to these things. And quite often, I I think the root of it has to do with because we haven't identified what enough is Mm. for us. And so we feel as though we have this sort of plague of more. I need more, more, more. If I just had that, then I'd be happy. If I just had this, then I would be fulfilled. If I Mm. just had this, then I'd be satisfied. And then we get those things. Of course, they don't make us happy. The objects of our desire quickly become the objects of our discontent. But then we still don't let go of them because of that emotional attachment there. And so I'm trying to make this this connection with, between, okay, when do we pick up an emotional attachment to those things? I think you answered that. The, quite often, we mistake the memories as though they are part of the thing. Right. Now, they can be triggers for the thing, as, as you illuminated there, but the memory's not actually in the thing. The memories are always in us. So you can do the thing about journaling or taking a photograph and then let it go. That's yeah. right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And also to look carefully at what's driving the bigger issue, which is sort of these states of mind that we often will fall into. And uh, just uh, just at the beginning of the year now, and I was just thinking about what are the things I'm noticing grow up as I think about, you know, uh, oftentimes we think, okay, new year, new me. And that's a whole, it's a, actually a great opportunity to do some of the tips and, and advice that you give as well. But when you think about imparting new habits in your life, in fact, if it's an exercise routine or whatever it is, you know, you're going to a buy less or whatever it is that you're going to do, mm-hmm. you have to remember the mental habits that are at play that you, if you don't acknowledge are probably going to land you right back where you've been. Mm. And one of them is actually something you just touched on, Josh, which was the if only kind of mental habit, right? Mm. And so what is that if only notion? It's it's essentially what we'd call <laughs> kind of technically a contingent reality, mm. like X, then Y. And and then, you know, this kind of this gets it. So that's what I love about what you both talk about often is that it just quickly gets us into the deepest spaces of the human experience. Yeah. And so this notion of a contingent reality is something that in some sense is tied to our, our humanness yeah. because it's the journey moment by moment of our lives. So, you know, in the book, I talk a lot about uh, a solution to a lot of the issues that can be described as mental clutter are definitely tied to our physical environment, uh, mindfulness training. Yeah. And one of the things that mindfulness training is talking about is an acknowledging of what is happening moment by moment without sort of an elaborating on it and without a reaction to it. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like the mindfulness training helps you uh, yes, to guide that flashlight a little bit better. You talked about like the flashing yellow lights and how easy our attention is taken away. It helps your attention to not be swept away as easily. It's more than that, though, yeah. right? It's more than the, it, for sure, all three of those systems, the flashlight, something I call the floodlight, the alerting system, mm-hmm. and then the juggler, it exercises all of those. And mm-hmm. we should definitely provide people with some opportunity to understand what this is a little bit more. But mindfulness sort of fundamentally is, I think, so connected to the minimalist approach. Mm, yeah. Because it's taking it very granular. It's really taking experience in life moment by moment. So 
again, we're going to now ter- completely go into a, a different direction if we move here. But I don't know if we're staying with the question Alexandra I think, asked. I, think, <laughs> I, I do want to talk to you more about uh, mindfulness yeah, in a yeah, moment. Yeah, so let's yeah. do that uh, when we get to the lightning round here. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's see. Do we have anything in uh, the live stream? Any questions right now? We have one question from Alex. In a corporate world where you were half excuse me, in a corporate world where you have to show proof on anything and we're constantly bombarded with emails, instant messages, calls and video calls, how would you approach this topic? Mm. So, yeah, here's the thing about being constantly bombarded. What what we're talking about here is the, the it's the floodlight and you don't have an opportunity for the, the flashlight in a way, right? Let me ask you this. Are there certain savants of living, though, that uh, through mindfulness training, et cetera, have, um, are able to sort of ignore those alarms in a way that the average person like me and Ryan are not able to? Oh, um, probably not. Mm. <laughs> mm. And, I, and that's just because and, of our hardwiring. Yeah, and I would I would say it's not necessarily having anything to do with the floodlight. It really is the same flashlight approach, because it serves us to be able to flip our attention to whatever it is that may be calling on us. Mm. Right. And a work email, in some sense, especially if it's from somebody consequential, like a you know supervisor or something, it's almost like you've got a spear that's going to be coming your way, right from our ancient ancestors so that Mm. what it creates in our mind and in our body is very similar to that notion of threat. So whatever way our attention system responds is plugging into something that has been evolutionarily baked in. Mm. And so there's nothing sort of problematic with that happening. In fact, you know, a lot of people will say, well, isn't our attention span shrinking? Like, aren't we now just terribly unable to pay attention? And no, our attention system is not shrinking. There's nothing different about the attention than it was, at least in the 50 or 60 years that we've been able to track it in the laboratory. Attention spans are not shrinking. Okay. But our f- experience of the crisis of attention is is real. And I think what's been described in this question really typifies that. It's like mm. there's too much stuff. It's flooding at me. I can't manage it. How do I help myself? And the ignoring aspect is what I'm kind of picking up on on what you said. Mm -hmm. Ignoring is actually another very, very mentally, energetically costly thing to do. Um, It's not actually disregarding with a neutrality. It's putting energy into suppressing that. mm. And so it takes just as much energy to pay attention to something and engage with it as it does to say, pay attention to this and then don't engage with it. Oh, wow. So uh, knowing yes. that is very helpful because you're like, oh, if you say I'm just going to push that away, what are you pushing away? Oh, that thing. Okay, what are you pushing away? That thing. Every time you have to say to yourself the thing you're pushing away, you're actually interacting with it in some way mentally. Mm. Yeah. So so here's the thing. It's not about not having the flood of stuff. That's the nature of life. But how can we manage our space, the way we operate in a manner that is not going to spend out that attentional fuel more than it needs to? Mm. So, for example, even if you need to have all your tabs open for some period of time because there may be some emergent crises, uh, you need to be responsive in a very time-sensitive manner, do that. But any time you don't need to be having all the tabs, notifications, cell phone on, every browser open, don't do that. And a simple way to say it is monotask, don't multitask. Because it ends up that multitasking, which is essentially what we're putting ourselves through, we're not – we're calling it multitasking, but it's actually not – multitasking. Mm. It's something called task switching, right? right? So that flashlight is now in this email. Now we're pulling it away, putting it to the text message, bringing it back, reading this thing. So what we're doing is 
is engaging, disengaging, moving, and switching where we operate. Every time we have to make a switch, we have to kind of recalibrate the entirety of the brain, which is sounds weird, but it's it's true. It's like you can think of the mind as a um, studio apartment, you know, as a limited space, there's a limited amount of stuff. And if I'm making a, a, a big meal, I'm going to configure the apartment very differently than if I'm going to sleep. Mm, right. So that rearranging is what we're doing every time we make a switch. That seems pretty costly. It's so costly. So so if you monotask, essentially you're you're you've got the configuration of the mind in some way, just like the configuration of that apartment apart, studio apartment, and then you're using it. You don't need to spend out those extra switches. So mm. that's a simple one, meaning simple to say, not always simple to do. Right. But know that it's beneficial. It's not actually a sign of of honor or success to put yourself in a position where you've got to try to attend to multiple things at once because you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to our mm. patrons. Thank you so much for the uh, live stream questions. I know we got a bunch more. We'll address those on the Maximal episode this week. Oh, by the way, Alexandra, I want to send you a copy of our book, Love People, Use Things. I think you'll find uh, immense help in two of the chapters in particular. We have, so it's this relationship book. One of the chapters is our relationship with our stuff. And the other one is our relationship with ourselves. We even talk about meditation in that chapter as well. So podcast, Sean, if you could reach out to Alexandra... Let her get a copy of Love People Use Things. If you want the book book, we're happy to send that to you or the ebook or the audio book, whatever you'd like. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions. You can text your comments and questions to area code 937-202-4654. Yes, indeed. Now, Amishi, th- this is where we do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable okay. Less than 140 character response. Oof. Not really. We monitor <laughs> on a bit. And what happens, Podcast Sean tweezes out something, makes it pithy and beautiful. Uh, we call them Minimal Maxims. By the way, you can find all of our Minimal Maxims in one place now. It's minimalmaxims.com. Hey, Malabama, looks like Jen has a question for us. I want to relax at the end of the day with something that doesn't involve a screen, but I don't have the energy for hobbies that I enjoy. How do you mentally switch off without feeling like you've wasted your free time? Mm. I have something pithy for you, and I'd love to unpack it with Amishi here. So, so this is just a, I think this is a, something that Ryan came up with years ago, and now I'm just <laughs> I'm repurposing it. A mind is a terrible thing to clutter. <laughs> you know, we, we've, we hear the old adage, I think it was like one of those, don't it was just say no commercials, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Yeah. But one way that we waste it is by cluttering it. Now, you've already talked about all these things that sort of suck up our attention. And there many of them are unwelcome things. And I've, I've seen and, and heard you talk about also how we're essentially wasting at least half of our lives because our attention is so wasted with all of this sort of mental clutter. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the statistic is 50% of our waking moments, our attention is not in the task at hand. Mm. So whatever it is that we think we're supposed to be doing, we're hijacked away from it. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it's completely inefficient, right? Because if you're doing something, put your mind there. One of the reasons people don't tend to do that is because they don't know where their attention is. Mm. And so my pithy answer would be pay attention to your attention because- Ooh. That's going to be the way to get back on track when you need it most. Oh, yes, man, spitting bars over here. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got for us, Nicodemus? Oh, a quiet mind is a clutter-free mind. So when I hear the question that Jen is asking, um, you know, she's like, "How do I feel like I don't waste my time?" But you know, paying attention to your attention, having a mindfulness practice, um, having a quiet mind—that's not a waste of time. Yeah, at all. 
I think it also kind of depends on what you want to pay attention to as well. I heard uh, Naval Ravikant, he was talking about how if um, you brought an alien to Earth and he witnessed like your average cubicle worker in a day and they do like their eight hours of work in a cubicle on a computer screen and, you know, it's chaotic and spreadsheets and all these things. And they go home and they're playing video games and they're getting pure joy out of that. They wouldn't be able to the alien may not be able to tell what is work and what is play. And it all a lot of that has to do with what we want to focus our attention on in a way. Is there any research behind that? Because sometimes it's, it feels like drudgery to do the certain things that we don't want to do or being forced to do. And it's harder to pay attention to that. But then when we put ourselves in a play state or a, a focused state, one might call a flow state, it it feels a lot more effortless. And it almost feels as though it's easier to to maintain one's attention in that setting. Yeah. I mean, there's what you're describing is that that resisting mind in some sense, right? Yeah. We're resisting the requirements of the moment. And when we do that, when we experience something where we feel like this is unsatisfactory or I don't want this to happen, and oftentimes that happens with many aspects of our work. You know, I mean, I love what I do, but if I have to look at budget sheets for hours on end, I don't love that, mm. <laughs> right? I mean, that's not the, that's not fun science stuff. That's just like work. Yeah. And so, you know, when I realize that that's happening, what I want to do initially, the the urge may be pull away from this. Don't do this. What is that? What is that thought? That is a form of mental clutter. Mm. So, in some sense, what happens is the thought arises. It proliferates a whole bunch of other thoughts, and then what happens? Now, all of a sudden. There's so much thinking happening that there's no actual energy or attention left to do the thing I need to do. So I've spent so much of my time and energy elaborating concepts, creating alternate realities, simulating a reality in which I'm not doing the thing I need to do. That's disadvantaging my thing, ability to get the thing done. Mm. How could I have stopped any of that? Like, how could I have saved myself what could have ended up being a couple of hours of just being like, oh, I hate that I have to do this, right? Well, first of all, is to catch it sooner. It's like, yes, Amishi is resisting the fact that she's got to do this task that she doesn't want to do and allow that feeling instead of continuing to grow in terms of the uh, conceptual uh, chain of thoughts that it that follow. Mm -hmm actually sit with the resisting feeling. You know, mm. I'm just, and, and I've done this where, and it, I mean, usually not in the context of something like budget sheets, but just like experience the resisting. Just let yourself feel that. Feel it in the body. Feel it like in tension in your jaw, your back, and hold it. It sounds counterintuitive, but when you have an aversive feeling or a sense of resistance, if you just allow it to kind of settle in, it will pass away. Yes. Because the goals are the goals and the mind is is aware of what needs to get done. Mm. But, you know, it's a totally different approach than fight the fact that you have to do this. Yes. One will be shorter and probably allow you to get more in touch with yourself. Like, wow, I never noticed that when I get this resistant to something, I, I clinch my jaw or I tighten my back muscles and then I have spasms at the end of the day. Mm. It's not the nature of the work that's causing the spasms. It's the mental and physical kind of milieu that you end up proliferating in your mind. Right. So anyway, I think that that's uh, paying attention to the body in that way can allow the, the difficult emotion to pass away. And by the way, then you have all this attention left to actually probably more efficiently get the thing you're resisting done, done. Mm. That's beautiful. 
Yeah. Amisha, we got so much more to talk about. <laughs> but first, uh, real quick, uh, we did this little segment called Right Here, Right Now. Here's one thing going on in the life of the minimalist. It's a brand new month right now. And Ryan and I have this little thing called the 30-day minimalism game. We have a lot of people, we've had tens of thousands of people play it because some people don't want to go all out and do a full packing party and pretend they're moving with all 300,000 <laughs> of their items. But people are all often say, I don't know where to get started. I want to start simplifying my life. I have too much stuff. I'm overwhelmed by it. I don't even know what to do. And I wonder how this could apply to mental clutter. Maybe we can even talk about that on the Maxwell episode this week. But for physical clutter, I would start with something called the 30-day minimalism game. Here's how it works. You find a friend, a family member, a co-worker, an arch nemesis, <laughs> whomever you'd like. You partner up with someone and the first day of the month, you each get rid of one item. So it gets you started, gets you that momentum you need. Second day of the month, two items. Third day of the month, three items, so forth and so on. So as the month progresses, it gets a little more difficult. By day 12, I found that people start saying, uh-oh, I have to get rid of 12 things today and tomorrow I have to get rid of 13 things. Now, you can bet whatever you want. Bet a dollar, a lunch, a million dollars. Whoever goes the longest wins. If you both make it to the end of the month, then you've both won because you've gotten rid of about 500 items. And it's a really good start. And we've had people continue to play beyond day 30 or day 31. And sometimes they'll start over, reset for the month. We've had some people just keep going and going and going. It's day 319. Mm. I'm going to get rid of 319 things today. They're counting out paper clips and so forth. Yeah. Anyway, we have a, a, a free calendar you can download. TheMinimalists.com slash resources. It's over on our resources page, a bunch of free resources over there, but it's a principal, uh, printable calendar so you can see exactly how many things you've gotten rid of throughout the month. By the way, I still owe Josh a million dollars. Yeah, but that's for something else. <laughs> hey, Alabama, what else you got for us? Here are some voicemail comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, my name is Yarden, and I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. I um, had an idea uh, regarding minimizing baby stuff um, in regards to a question that appeared on the parenting episode. Um, I find it incredibly hard still to get rid of anything that has my baby's name on it. Uh, he's almost one year old. Uh, but I do find that with time and as he becomes more ingrained in our lives, it gets easier. And I don't feel that I need to hold on to every single thing. So my idea is that um, in, in, in line with um, the minimalist attitude in general, to revisit things, um, every few months I kind of take a look at the things that I've kept around, um, cards that we got when he was born, little gifts that we never used, stuff like that. And every few months I find that I can get rid of a couple more things that don't actually add that much value or mean that much anymore. Um, so, you know, it's kind of an ongoing process. It's not a one-stop shop, but it works. Hello, my name is Nadia and I'm from Denver, Colorado. With spring cleaning around the corner, I have a tip to share on ethical recycling of unwanted clothing items. There's an online consignment store called ThreadUp where you can recycle your clothes for cash, credit, or donation. One of the best things that we can do for our planet is to consume less. But if we're going to consume, buying secondhand is a great option. So here's how it works. You can order a kit from their website at www.threadup.com. And that is T-H-R-E-D-U-P. You fill up the box with unwanted clothing items and send it off. They do all the work. They inspect the clothing, they take pictures, and they sell it for you. 
And you can either get cash back or credit to their store to use on items that you may need, or you can choose a charity of your choice to donate your proceeds to, which is personally my favorite option. And the best part is that whatever doesn't sell, they will ethically recycle those items for you. They're a great company to collaborate with, with a wonderful philosophy on making a positive impact on our planet which is if more people wore secondhand clothing items, that would mean less waste. And if everyone in the U.S. bought just one item used instead of something new this year, it would save nearly six billion pounds of carbon emissions. All right, y'all. Big thanks to Dr. Amishi Ja for joining us today. Check out her new book. It's called Peak Mind. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Also, Ryan, she has her website. It's amishi.com, A-M-I-S-H-I.com. If you want to keep up with everything she's doing down there in Miami, at the university and in the lab. For our added value this week, Ryan, you know, at the end of last year, I put out my top 10 albums list. Yes. Which had nine albums on it. I was going to say, how many albums were on it this time? (laughs) There were nine. Sometimes there are 12 on my top 10 list. But last year was one of the best years for music in a long time, Mm. Uh, especially almost like, you know, 2020, where there was like not a lot of people. They sort of waited to release stuff. So there was like this pent up angst that created some really um, breakout albums. Pardon the pun. But anyway, one (laughs) of of those albums was um, something I discovered toward the end of the year. It's a guy named Mustafa, and the album is called When Smoke Rises, and the opening track is called Stay Alive. And the way that I described it on my year-end list, which, by the way, if you want to check out all those albums, it's just theminimalists.com slash sound. It's a blog post over on our website. But his album, it's almost as though... Nick Drake and Drake made an album together. Oh, nice. I call it urban alt folk music. <laughs> and it is so good. It's only eight oh, songs. I'll have to check it out, man. It's minimalist and it is a masterpiece. I think it was number five on my year end list. What was number one? Mike. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was a good one. That yeah. Good one. Like it just, I, I've listened to it all summer. And so yeah, it's a good one. you can check out the whole list though, theminimalists.com slash sound. But in particular, check out Stay Alive, the opening track from Wind Smoke Rises on Mustafa's new album. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. By the way, we have a bunch more surprise questions this week. Like how can I escape doom scrolling and reduce the distraction of social media? I struggle to release physical objects without my brain saying, hey, you can't let go of that. How do you override your mind's defensiveness when you really don't need something anymore? And I'll get into a great flow state working on something, but distractions always seem to find me. How do I deal with unavoidable interruptions? Plus a million more questions for Amishi and The Minimalists. And if you want to hear all that, check out The Minimalist private podcast this week. Visit patreon.com slash The Minimalist to subscribe and get your personal link so that our weekly private podcast plays in your favorite podcast app. You'll also gain immediate access to hundreds of hours of private archives, recordings of live events, exclusive home tours, and our private community of thousands of open-minded minimizers like you. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, 
Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. If you want our podcast show notes in your inbox, sign up for our email list at theminimalists.com. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, Podcast Sean, Malabama, Jordan No More, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn, reminding you to love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. A bottle of lead, a gun in your jeans, and a little faith in me. A plan in the sky, the only starlight on this never ending street. The cameras and cops, we could have been stars on our mother's new screens. On our mother's new screens. All of these tribes, and all of these street signs, none of them will be yours or mine, but I'll be your empire. Just stay alive, stay alive, stay alive. I've been, I've been trying to keep my cool, man, before I lose it.